Hi everyone, good to see you here at the EU public meeting. Let, us, let me lead us in a prayer, we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us to lighten our darkness and we pray that as we take a moment now towards the end of our week to reflect upon your word, Father, that we would hear you speak through it and that you would work in us by your spirit that we might amend our lives so that we live in accordance with your will because we want to bring honour to Jesus in the way we live. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, I've rolled up my shirt sleeves and I'm wearing my sort of engineering type pattern shirt because today is a day for the engineers. Today is a day for the science students. Today is a day for everyone who's going to get a job at the end of uni. Today is a practical day. A practical day. The section that we're looking at this book of Romans, Romans chapter 12 and 13, is intensely practical. You can't read a paragraph, you can't read two sentences without there being a very clear exhortation or encouragement to you, if you call yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus, on how you ought to live. Right? So if you're a practical type person, you're going to love this. Let me say though, there is so much detail in just chapters 12 and 13, so many specific words about how we ought to live our lives if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that it's actually very hard to work out how do I fit all this together, how do I possibly take all this in, it just seems just thing after thing after thing after thing. Sometimes within one verse, within six words, you'll get three commands. How are you going to hold all that in? So that's the question for us. So as we get started looking here at the Christian life, let's then think first of all about how it is connected. How is this little section, chapter 12, chapter 13 of Romans, connected in to the big story that Paul is telling in the book of Romans? Right? Remember this book of Romans in the New Testament? It's a letter. You don't just dive into a letter you receive from somebody or an email, decide to jump in three quarters of the way through, you read it from the beginning. Right? We've got to assume here that you know we've been following along from the beginning. Where are we up to? How is this connected in? So let's have a look, first of all, at chapter 12. Let me just read out the first three verses. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... Actually, I'm going to pause right there. I need to stop already and try and work out what have we just seen, what have we just read and how does it tie in. So, yes, it's going to take us a while to get through two chapters here at this rate. But anyway, in view of God's mercy, what's he referring to? Now, if you're a Christian or you understand Christian things, you've been around Christian things for a while, you might say, oh, what, God's mercy, I sort of know what that is, that's about Jesus... No, I'm saying, what's Paul referring to here? It's a little Bible reading tip. If you want to work out to that, what to which he refers, where do you look? Well, you just look for the sort of, what was the, the earliest, the, sort of the, the previous reference to mercy that he just made? Where was the last reference to mercy? And there's one actually just a few verses before. See, the problem is the chapter division doesn't help you, it distracts you. If you look back in chapter 11, verse 32, you get a reference to mercy. And he says here in 11.32, For God has bound everyone over to disobedience 
so that he may have mercy on them all. Now, if you were here last week, I, I referred to that particular verse and said, this is a, this is a crazy deep verse, chapter 11.32. It is describing God's way of dealing with all of humanity through all space and time. God has bound all people over to disobedience so he might have mercy on them all. What that's saying is, if you want to be right with God, if you want to be justified, given the thumbs up from God, you're okay by me. If you you want that to be you, the only way that can be true of you is if you experience his mercy. Because God has bound all people over to disobedience that he might have mercy on them all. So this this verse, 11.32, is a big verse. And in a way, it summarises the first 11 chapters of the book. It tells the great story from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 11. So having summarised it there in 11.32, Paul then says, right, well in view of God's mercy, which I've talked about for 11 chapters, this is how you should live. Okay? And as he heads into this section on how you should live, he does a typical Paul sort of trick. Not a trick, that is a, a typical Paul thing. When he writes his letters, he tends to make a summary statement and then flesh it out in the following paragraphs. And what he does here in chapters 12 and 13, in the first three verses, he gives you like the summary and then he'll fill it out in the rest of the chapters. So let's read chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore I urge you, writes Paul, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. People often pause there and go, that's sort of the heading, those two verses, but I think the first three is meant to be part of it as well because it's strongly linked. He goes straight on, for, giving you reason, for, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgement in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So what are we seeing here? I'm going to suggest a couple of things. Romans 12, 1-3, I think, is a summary heading for these chapters, right? Verses 12 and 13 and actually 14 and 15 as well. The key linking point, as I pointed out, is this phrase, in view of God's mercy. Mercy is referring there back to chapter 11, verse 32, which I suggest might be summarising the whole of the letter. How then, what has gone on in this letter? What is this mercy that God has shown his creatures, his creation? Well, if you want to trace that out, if I can try and summarise the book of Romans in just a few sentences... The book started in chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 20, with this picture, a picture that everybody is under God's righteous judgement for their disobedience, for evil, for being evil. So in chapter 1, verse 18, it talks about how humanity, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, has rejected God the Creator and instead has decided to worship other things. 
We're not committed to God, we're committed to other things and that has resulted in all sorts of wickedness and evil in human life and human society and in the world in general. That was the picture that started in chapter 118. And when you get through to chapter 3, verse 20, you'll see that he says it doesn't matter whether you're from a Jewish background or from a non-Jewish Gentile background, outside of Jesus we are all under the power of sin. It is a terrible picture, right? That chapter 1 through to chapter 3. A terrible picture of life without the Lord Jesus Christ. Then what he does in the next section, really from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through to chapter 11, he talks about how God has intervened in this situation out of his mercy. It talks about God's transforming mercy. And what shape does this take? Well, the mercy of God is shown most clearly in Jesus Christ, that God sent Jesus. What, what did God do when he sent Jesus? Well, you, some of the things out of, le- out of the letter. Chapter 3, God sent Jesus as the propitiation for our sins so that we can be justified with God, given a thumbs up by God. But that's not the only thing we learn about God's mercy. In chapter 6, we learn that because of the work of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, because we are united to him by faith, that we are no longer slaves to sin. We've been freed from, sl- from slavery to sin and now we can live a new life to God. But that's not all. We get to chapter 8, you learn that actually God has now made you his own child and put his spirit in you so that you can live for God. And then you get to chapter 9, and 11, 9 to 11, you realise this promise of the spirit and this renewed life as God's people is not just for those who are from a Jewish background, it's now for all people from everywhere. This is the picture of God's transforming mercy in Jesus Christ which addresses the original terrible picture of chapter 1 to 3. You with me? And so now we've gone, there's the original bad picture, here's God's transforming mercy in Christ in view of God's mercy. What do you do now? How do you live now in Christ Jesus if you call yourself a Christian? Well, his answer... His answer in chapter 12 and 13 is to say what the result of God's transforming mercy is an alternative picture to chapter 1 to 3. He presents a counter picture. The result of God's transforming mercy in Jesus is, is this completely different sort of life, both individually and corporately. So you can see that these two pictures, chapter 1 to 3, Chapters 12 to 13 paint opposite, they bookend God's intervening, transforming mercy. Okay? That's how it fits within the big shape of the letter. Now, I'm just not, I don't think I'm just making that up. The reason I think they're counter pictures to each other is because there are a whole lot of words, phrases, and ideas that appear in both. I think this is consciously in Paul's mind. So let me show you a few of them. In chapter 1, humanity is worshipping the creature, not the creator. What did we read in chapter 12, verse 1? This is your true worship or your spiritual worship. As a result of God's transforming mercy, mercy, worship is transformed. I'll give you another one. In chapter 1, people have been given over to depraved minds. What do you see in chapter 12? Verse 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Give you another one. In chapter 1, they have, the people have rejected the knowledge of God, but here in chapter 12, verse 2, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So from rejecting knowledge of God to approving of God's will. In chapter 1, people are degrading themselves with their bodies. In chapter 12 and 13, you're offering your bodies to God as your spiritual worship. Chapter 1, people are inventors of evil. Chapter 12 and 13, people are haters of evil and overcoming evil with good. You see, all these sort of parallels. This is what happens as a result of God's, this is God's transforming mercy. So, it's a counter picture. It's a picture of God's transforming mercy. It also, I think, reflects the transformation that is at the very heart of the letter. Uh, Bible scholars, because, I don't know, I guess they're paid to do this, they come up with lots and lots of theories on how you can divide up the book of Romans. And so one of the things you can ask is, where is the heart of the letter? What verse is at the heart of it? Is it chapters 5 to 8, is that the heart of the letter? Is chapters 9 to 11 the climax of the letter? Is it 12 to 15 the heart of the letter? You know, you pick, pick whatever you like, write a book, make money, maybe. But I wonder whether the heart of the letter is actually... In light of these bookends, right, in light of these two pictures, I wonder whether the heart of the letter might be chapter 6. Because what you get in chapter 6 is you get a little, as you come into the transforming mercy of God, you get a little picture of this picture at 12 and 13. What I mean is in chapter 6, that's where you're told that we have now been set free from slavery to sin and are now alive to God in Christ Jesus, that we're no longer... Um, to let sin be master of our bodies. So you get some of these parallels again. It's about bodies, it's about the flesh and I think that's a little window of what we get here in chapter 12 and 13, particularly because the last verse of chapter 13 sounds a lot like chapter 6 when he says, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. That, That stuff about the desires of the flesh, that sounds a lot like chapter 6 here. What I'm saying is I think there's a pattern here, right? Paul is painting one big story. It all ties together throughout the book of Romans. In fact, one of, what's the big theme of the book of the Romans? The big theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. We know this from chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The big theme is that the gospel of Jesus Christ demonstrates, proves God's righteousness. Now, you've heard me say this many times, what's God's righteousness? I suggest to you that it is God's fidelity, his faithfulness to his good intentions to see his creation purposes fulfilled. That's what it means for God to be righteous. He's going to fulfil his good intentions for creation. What I've just described to you in terms of these counter pictures, does that fit into an understanding of God's righteousness? Absolutely. See, because God's righteousness is he's not going to let humanity stay in that terrible picture of chapter 1 to 3. God wants to bring it to the picture of chapter 12 to 13. This is what it means for God to be righteous. He's going to bring about this transformation. So it fits into the big theme within the overall book of Romans. But who's the central player in the book of Romans? Well, no surprise there, it's the Lord Jesus. And what you see here is intimately related to the Lord Jesus. 
See, who is the big sacrifice in the book of Romans? It's Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, he's the propitiation for our sins. Chapter chapter 8, he's the one given for sin. I take it as a sacrifice. Chapter 4, it's the one who for sin went to die, went to death. Over and over again in the book of Romans, Jesus is the sacrifice at the centre of God's transforming mercy. What you get here in this heading of chapter 12, 1 to 3, he says, Now, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. The Christian life is modelled on Jesus. He is the literal sacrifice. You live, if you're a Christian, every day as a living sacrifice. It's a funny adjective to use for the word sacrifice, right? Sacrifices die. But you are a living sacrifice. Each day you live sacrificially following your Lord Jesus. So it's modelled here, this, the Christian life is modelled deeply in the book of Romans on Jesus himself. And final point just about this heading, this is not just about individuals, this is about a community. The picture in chapter 1 to 3 was about individuals and society. It described um, things like murder. Murder is, I guess, one of the most destructive things you can do within a society, right? Kill off another member of society, of the community. It is corporate, not just individual in chapter 1 to 3. Here in 12 and 13, it's corporate, not just individual. If you just stopped reading at the end of verse 2, you might read it individually and because we're so infected by enlightenment individualism, we do tend to read things and the Bible individually. But what Paul says here when you get to verse 3 is it's very clear that he's thinking about individuals and the community, the character of God's people together, in their life together. So, here's just a little bit of, sort of what he's introducing in chapters 12 to 13. Why am I spending so much time doing this? Because as you read and reflect on these chapters, I want you to know how it's fitting in to the whole book. It's not that Paul just got tired of theology and decided to get practical. This is tied into the whole letter. He's saying this is the condition of humanity. This is God's transforming mercy. This is now how we're to live as God's redeemed and transformed community as proof of his righteousness. There's a big story here to hold on to. Okay. Now that I've sort of established all that and tried to help you on all that, what can we actually say about these chapters, verses 12 to 13? I'm not going to go through line by line, I'm going to tell you there's four sections in chapters 12 to 13. And I'm just going to outline them for you, again, to try to give you a bit of framework. Four sections. First of all, the first section is about life in the body of Christ. They're all going to, the sections are all going to start with life in. Okay? Life in the body of Christ. This is chapter 12, verses 4 to 16. He starts out in this little section by talking about the theological truth that we are one body in Christ as those who have faith in Jesus. One body in Christ, we have different gifts but we belong to each other. Have a look there in your Bible in verse 4 of chapter 12. For just as each of us have one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. And then he goes through some different gifts that people in the body of Christ might have. It might be ministry or leadership or prophecy or whatever it is. 
His point is this. I am one body as I stand here. And I have different parts of my body. These are my eyebrows. And this is my foot. Now, clearly, my eyebrows have a function. You'll know that if you've ever had your eyebrows shaved off. Anyone had their eyebrows shaved off ever? Yes, if you have your eyebrows shaved off, what happens is stuff falls in your eye a lot. Your eyebrows actually prevent things like dust and sticks and stuff falling, <laughs> falling into your eyes. They have a function, right? My foot, my foot has a different function. My foot does not keep things from falling into my eye. Maybe you can do it, such as your foot does do that job, but I can't do that, right? They have different functions, okay? But this is the somewhat thoughtful, challenging point he makes. My eyebrows belong to my foot. My feet belong to these eyebrows. Your eyebrows are no good to my foot. My feet are no good for your eyebrows. What I'm saying is, it is not just that my feet and my eyebrows live in the same body. It's that they, they, they actually belong to each other. They don't just function together. These are the eyebrows of my feet. These are the feet of my eyebrows. They function together and live together in one body and they not just need each other, which is sort of functional, they they belong to each other. The deep thing about that is that he's applying that to the Christian community. It's not that just I need you and you need me. It's not just that we're in Christ together. It's that you belong to me, I belong to you. Do you see how that's so much more than functional? It's even so much more than just Christological in the sense of it's in Christ. It's actually because we're in Christ, now we actually belong together. This is a very intimate view of Christian community, isn't it? And what I'm saying to you, do you think about church like that? When you turn up to church on a Sunday, do you look around at people and you go, yes, I belong to you and you guys belong to me. When you turn up to a, a small group on campus, and you small group, do you, do you think, yeah, I belong to these people and they belong to me because we're in Christ? I actually think that challenges our diffidence, our sort of distance from one another. We belong to each other. So, he starts out with this sort of theolog- theological observation and then he says, so... What's the, what's the import of that? What's the impact of that? And what he says is, this affects, this shapes, determines the, the character of the body's life together. And in particular, when he gets there to verse 9, he has another one of his little summary headings. He says three key words, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, if you want to understand chapters 12 and 13, Understand those three words. Love, (coughs) evil, good. Those three words 
recur throughout these chapters time and time and time again. So often, in fact, that sometimes our English translations decide to put a substitute in just to sort of lighten it up a bit. But actually lose the impact. This is what he's talking about. If you want to know how to live in the body of Christ, love, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Right? And those things then are played out. And so, first of all, he goes through a whole lot of um, descriptions of what love should look like. What does it mean to love? Verse 10 through to verse 16 are all the different situations in which the body is called to love. Verse 10 says love as siblings. Literally, brotherly love, but sibling love. Now, you might think, well, I don't get on terribly well with my brother or sister at home. I have a younger brother. He's eight years younger than me. When he was eight and I was 16, not much in common. Actually didn't get on terribly well together. Now that we've both come through childhood, reached sort of adulthood, we have a fantastic relationship. We have an incredible amount of respect for one another. We both think the other person is pretty much awesome. (laughs) We have this incredible affection and sibling love, you know? And that's the sort of love with which we were to have in the community. In fact, in verse 9 he says, love is to be sincere. Well, actually what he says is, Love is to be unfake, is how he actually says it. He doesn't speak positively, he speaks against something. He says, love is to be unfake. You know what fake love's like? You know, where yeah, yeah, we're, we're Christians together, yeah, we love each other, hey, how you doing? Ooh. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> love is to be unfake. And it covers all sorts of situations. Verse 11, he says, go for it. Don't be slothful in this. Verse 12, love through the hard times. 13 to 14, love the saints, that is the wider Christian community. Care, show hospitality to strangers. I take it that includes sort of other Christians who sort of wander into your town, like show hospitality to them. Verses 15 and 16, love needs to cover all the different situations different emotional states, different sort of whether you're high or low in society. This is what Christian love is like. Then he moves on. 12, in uh, chapter 12, verse 17, he moves on here to life in the world. So he's talked about life in the body of Christ and now he's talking about life in the world. Now, you remember before I said the three big words for understanding these chapters were love, evil and good. We've talked a bit about love. Now he's going to talk about evil and good. In particular, what he says, I guess there's a summary there in verse 21, he says, overcome evil with good. You'll see there in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. What sort of evil is he talking about? He's talking about how, as Christians in the world, you will face opposition. You will face hatred. You will face persecution. And he says, when that comes to you, don't respond in kind. Leave room for God's vengeance. You're not to respond with sort of aggression back or violence back or persecution back or hatred back. No, rather you're to overcome evil with good with kindness. So that affects how the Christians are respond to outside uh, not non-Christians who might really have it in for Christians. 
But then he moves on, this involves, this sort of attitude involves submission to the government authorities. Now, sometimes, again, the chapter division doesn't help you. You might think he's moving on to a separate topic, but he's not. Those same key words of evil and good recur throughout chapter 13, 1 to 7. He's still thinking about evil and good. And what he says is, the government authorities, and remember, he's writing to Rome, right, Christians in Rome, who's the government authorities? The emperor, right? Are they Christian at this time? No. Right? He's not saying submit to Christian governments. No, he's saying whatever the government is, it, has, it is there, he says, as God's servant for your good because the government is set there to commend good and to punish evil. It bears the sword to punish evil. He says, so therefore, as Christians, we submit to the government, he says, for two reasons. We do one because, well, we don't want to cop the sword from them, so yes, out of fear. But also, he says, no, you also submit out of conscience because, you know, the authorities, the government is God's servant. So I submit to them out of respect that God has placed them there. Now, as soon as you describe that, you say, well, come on, there's a lot of governments in the world that I don't know if we should be submitting to. You know, what about Germany, World War II? What about Pol Pot? What about regimes that sort of try to squash Christianity. Are we meant to submit to the Good questions, good questions, right? They're good questions and what's more, the Bible has some things to say about that. You can see in the book of Acts when the apostles are challenged by the religious authorities, do not preach Christ anymore, they say, well, we're going to obey God, not human beings. So there's actual answers there in Scripture that you can start to put together a good response. However, get the baseline right. The baseline is... The authorities are there for your good as God's servant. Therefore, as Christians, we submit to them. In fact, we support them. We pay our taxes to keep them going. That's part of how we overcome evil with good. This is part of the picture of life in the world. Okay, so life in the community, life in the world. He's talked about the two, I guess, big relationships, hasn't he? Internal to the Christian community, how we relate to the world. He then finishes off by, by coming back to the heart of it, the heart of it which is a life in love. A life in love. Romans 13 verses 8 to 10. What he points out here is that when we love, when we love one another, when we love others, we are fulfilling God's intentions for his creatures. Go right, right back to chapter 1. God's people had rejected God and consequently their relationships were destroyed. Their relationships were not loving. But because of God's transforming mercy in Christ Jesus, you are now empowered by his spirit to live a life of love. And he says here, love, when you live love, love has always been the fulfilment of God's law. The law that God set for his people, the law that said how to live in the world, when you live the life of love, you've fulfilled that law. And I think from Romans 8 verse 4, when you, because of the Spirit, we can fulfil that law by living this life of love. Love is at the centre of what it means to be the redeemed, true people of God in his world. So having then said life in love, he gives you another perspective, the fi- finally, which is it's not just life in love. You saw a lap. It is life in the dawning light. And this brings the chapter to a close. 13 verses 11 to 14. Let me show it to you. Paul says, 
and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. That's all stuff from chapter 1, right? The old picture, the terrible picture. Rather, he says, verse 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. You'll see here what he's saying. He's saying the day of final salvation is near. The New Testament talks about salvation in three tenses. It says you have been saved because of the work of Christ, you're being saved through the work of God now and you will be saved finally on that final day when Jesus returns. He's saying the day of your final salvation, it is near. In fact, what he says is, so you should live honourably as in the day even though it's not here yet. How do you do that? You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me give you an analogy with which to remember this. Last Saturday morning, I decided to go for a bike ride. Uh, But I didn't want it to disrupt the day with the family too much, so I thought I'll get up and go early. So I thought, get on the bike at six, back at eight, two hours on the bike, and then day with the family. Great, no worries. So to, to do that, I got up at 10 to 6 on Saturday morning which I must admit is not a time I normally see on a Saturday morning. (laughs) 5.50am, said the clock radio. 5.50am. Do you know what it's like at 5.50am? It's very interesting. It's not dark. It's not like the middle of the night. It's not black. There's light. But at 5.50am, the sun has not come up. The light that there is, by which you get to, it's the light of the coming dawn, isn't it? The day is not yet here, but there's light. What do you do at that time of day? Well, I know what you do, you're just going to bed right then, but let's <laughs> think about normal people. What do you do at that moment? Do you keep going as though it's the middle of the night? No, what you do is you, you get dressed, don't you? It's that time of day. You get up, the light of the glowing dawn coming, you get dressed and you start to live as though the day's here. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, you live perpetually at 5.50am. Perpetually. It is always 5.50am for you until Jesus comes back. The night has gone. The day is coming. So put on Jesus. Don't give give in to the desires of the flesh. Live this transformed life because of God's great mercy, in view of his mercies, his mercy in Christ to you. You're a 5.50am Christian. Every time of day. Every day. So live that way while you wait for the dawn when we see the Lord Jesus face to face. So let me lead us in a prayer.
we pray, Heavenly Father, that in view of your great mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and by your Spirit, you would empower us to put off the desires of the flesh, to put on your Son and to live for him. We pray that we might do this, that it would be our true worship of you as we offer ourselves to you each and every day while we wait for him to come. Amen.